Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Sadat Kapanoglu, who is the CEO and co-founder of XSE, one of the original social media platforms in Turkey, and is now a West Coast-based programmer, developer, and still very much involved with XSE. Uh, he's also the author of the book Street Coder, Rules to Break and How to Break Them. Sadat's going to be talking about or telling us, you know, when coders should follow the normal standards and best practices uh, and the, the rules that they've been taught and when they should uh, break those rules and look for shortcuts or better ways to get the, uh, the, the job done. Hey, Sadat, how are you today? Good, Mark. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Whereabouts are you located? Uh, I'm in San Francisco. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're in the same time zone. I'm uh, about eight, 800 miles up the coast in the uh, Seattle-Bellevue-Redmond area. Okay. Uh, I, I lived in Seattle for five years, actually. Oh, yeah? Were you working for, yeah. let me guess, Microsoft? Yes, that's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like most of the engineers there. Yeah, well, these days it's it's Microsoft or Amazon. And then it's, it's amazing because I, I grew up in this area. And back when I was growing up, it was a one-shop town and it was all about Boeing. And, it, yeah. and liter- literally our economic fortunes would rise and fall based upon how Boeing was doing. And fortunately, that's not the case because Boeing's been having a really tough time this last couple of years. Microsoft came in and really changed the whole region because, of, of course, it's business. But then all of the startups from my, you know people who left Microsoft and started selling services back into Microsoft, and then you had you know Amazon start here and Expedia and T-Mobile and Starbucks, and and so it's uh, it's really well diversified. Probably not as diversified as the Bay Area, of course, but um, and you have you have better weather down there. Did you did you where where did you actually prefer living? Um. I think, I don't know, I think San Francisco is an outlier in California in terms of climate. It's always foggy uh, and windy down here. So it it resembles Seattle's weather a lot, actually, uh, except the rain. Yeah. <laughs> we don't get as much rain here. Yeah. Uh, but, but other than that, I, I think it's it's pretty okay. Yeah, and well, one thing with the, with the Bay Area is you can hop across the Bay over in like Pleasanton area or Sacramento or whatever, and, and instantly get another ten degrees warmer, which here we don't right. <laughs> we don't have that option. Uh, That's true. But That's uh, true. hey, so well, we didn't um, we didn't set this up to talk about the climate, though. I you know what people love to talk about the weather, <laughs> but uh, we we want to talk a little bit about um, your book, which is called Street Coder uh, Street Coder rules yeah. to break and how to break them and i'm super intrigued because i love breaking rules and um, i've got a bit <laughs> of a outlaw mindset whether it's in business or in life or in whatever but um why don't you uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know just give us an overview of your book 
and and also explain, you know, why did you decide to write this book? Yeah. Uh, so um, the book um, actually uh, touches the subject of uh, having a professional career and filling out the gaps between your career and what you learned. I'm a self-taught programmer, so um, I had to learn everything by myself. And uh, because of that, I had to learn a lot of unnecessary stuff while doing that. And uh, after I started working uh, at a company, I, I noticed that some of the things I learned didn't make any sense, but some of the things actually made a lot more sense than I, I could guess. And I think that's a problem with uh, all the programmers nowadays. They, uh, either they are from a university education or a boot camp or, a, uh, or a, any kind of training or just self-taught. They have some gap between what they learn and what they encounter in their professional career, which I call streets in the book. And I'm trying to fill this gap by uh, telling them about what makes sense in a professional setting. Like, uh, for example, algorithms, data structures, those kinds of subjects uh, might feel like boring during your university education. But after you start working at an actual, on an actual project, you start to notice that um, some of those uh, topics can actually be useful and make your life uh, less miserable because you can figure out that uh, some of the topics uh, can actually uh, help you write code faster or help you write a code that you don't need to touch again because maintenance is also a burden. And I'm trying to tell the readers about how to avoid future maintenance work by uh, writing uh, correct code uh, in the first place. And th th that that lets you avoid the whole um, maintenance burden later in the process. So uh, about uh, breaking rules, uh, the thing is uh, when we learn about something, uh, when we are a beginner or a medium level programmer, Every kind of paradigm looks like uh, the immutable law to us. And uh, I'd like to address that problem by saying like provocative suggestions, like don't write code comments, use go to. I mean, these are uh, in programming world, software development world, uh, these are, uh, you know, like uh, if someone hears you say that, they might say, what are you talking about? What do you mean don't write code comments? Or Well, no, that's interesting because I, I've, I've just taken a few <laughs> coding courses and I'm probably the least technical person on the whole West Coast of America. But uh, <laughs> but I know that that's, that seems to be one of the cardinal rules that when you're writing code, you always write comments. And, and again, yes. I've taken, I, and I'm not self-taught. I actually took courses. So I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell the professor. What are you talking about? Why, why would I write? So, so, but explain that. Why wouldn't you write comments? Yeah. So, for example, called comments. Um, in the book, I'm actually talking about how to write 
comments the right way. The, the problem is if you write comments for everything, every piece of code, you pollute the code with irrelevant information. For example, you add two to two and assign it to a variable in the code, and you say in the comments, we're adding two to two here. So I'm actually telling there to use comments in a more beneficial way. You write comments only when it matters. That's what I'm telling you in the book. But first, I have to you know, evoke the idea that you don't have to write all the comments that comes to your mind. You, you just need to uh, write comments only where it matters, so it can make a difference. Otherwise, uh, whoever reads your code starts ignoring your comments. And if you have something important to say in the comments, uh, it gets lost in all, all the other comments that didn't matter at all. So, I mean, in the, in the book, uh, I say don't write code comments, but in the actual text, I'm explaining how to write code comments the right way. So that's uh, the book's tone in general, like with everything. I mean, I say use go to. Go to is like a forbidden statement in programming world. If anyone sees you use go to, they would shoot you in the head because, <laughs> you know. You, you, you coders you, are pretty severe, man. That's like... <laughs> they, they are, unfortunately. I mean, code reviews can get brutal. Uh, so that's one of the earliest paradigms, you know, settled down in the programming world. Uh, Go to is considered harmful. That was an article uh, written by Edsker Dijkstra, and uh, he uh, he he's one of the most renowned scientists uh, in programming world, and uh, so that's why everybody follows this. But there are cases where go to can be beneficial uh, more than any other alternative. So in that section, I'm explaining the, those differences. So. All the breaking rules and, um, you know, or not breaking them is about having a sane understanding of existing paradigms and using them only when relevant and not using them when they don't make sense. I, I, I'm trying to uh, emphasize this throughout the book on so, every topic. So it's kind of like it's not about the rules, it's about the principle. And if you follow a certain principle, which is, for example, you know, what is the most efficient versus what does the rules say, or what is the most secure or the appropriate security level, you follow that regardless of some predefined rule. Yes, exactly. Let, let, me, uh, let me ask you, sorry to cut you off there, but let me ask you, why do you think that there is a disconnect between what is taught in universities and what is actually useful out in the quote-unquote real world, what's why is there that disconnect? There should, I mean, in, in an ideal world, you would have this immediate feedback loop, right? Um, yeah. But but why the why the disconnect? Uh, because curriculum doesn't change uh, as fast as the actual programming sector. Uh, so the, the requirements of a job uh, can evolve really quickly in a professional setting like the, a framework can get obsolete in five years but the curriculum stays the same about in decades over decades so um you 
and and it makes sense too. I mean, it doesn't make sense to change curriculum every other year. But um, well, but but here's but, the, here's the thing. I mean, computer science programs are probably the most competitive or one of the most competitive programs in American universities to get into right now, especially you know your top tier universities. I, you know, like so, University of Washington here, it's like, you know, 10% of the applicants get into the program. It's incredibly brutal and they spend a lot of time and money to get into these programs. Of course, they all have jobs waiting for them out there. And it's almost kind of like, it's almost that, that like the university doesn't really need to update their curriculum and be competitive. Because um, if they were in private business, if they were, if they were in private in industry, they would have to be competitive. But because they kind of almost have a monopoly, I mean, there's a limited number of seats, there's a limited number of programs, it seems to be that um, there can be that lag. Now, now you explain to me why you think that it's okay to have that lag or what they could do. I mean, you know, what, what, mm -hmm. what's your observation there? So, um, yeah, uh, there's obviously a lag. And that's what I'm trying to address in the book, too, because, you know, the, the computer science education is solid. They teach you all the basics and uh, everything relevant that can stay relevant for decades. But the thing is, uh, if when you start a job, uh, started a job, you quickly get up to speed. Like in, in a couple of years, you probably learn some of the stuff, uh, how they are relevant to uh, actual software development work and how some of the stuff isn't. And uh but you need to spend some time in order to do that i'm trying to uh you know close that gap faster than an actual professional experience can do so if you read the book you you can find out how algorithms will help you in your professional software development career then you can discover it by yourself over the years so it's like an accelerant in, in that sense that, that can provide an insight on software, professional software development world um, uh, without actually having to experience it in the first place. Well, that sounds like a very worthwhile investment, especially for anybody that's dropped, um, you know, whatever it is, uh, however many thousands and thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars to get a computer science education. It's well worth it to invest in your book if, if it can help them to cut some corners and accelerate their career. Um, yeah, it is still a single book. I mean, it's impossible to cover every, every topic. But uh, what I'm trying to focus on is to uh, provide a perspective change to new developers so they can uh, be inquisitive about whatever they learn be it at college or be it at a course. So um, so it's kind of like giving people a, a, an, um, a new or a, uh, an alternative mindset or framework to look at problems and instead of just what they've been fed from the, from the university. Um, exactly, yeah. It, let's talk about some of the specifics. I know in your book, you know, you mentioned uh, anti-patterns uh, in uh, bad programming practices and, you know, they can actually, sometimes the anti-patterns and bad practices can actually be put to good use. I mean, I think the, the example of, of comments or code comments is one example, or not using them, I should say. Um, is, there some other, is, is there some other examples of anti-patterns and bad programming practices? Uh, yeah, yeah, there are. I mean, um, like, for example, 
there is don't use inheritance in object-oriented programming. Um, inheritance is actually the backbone of object-oriented programming. It was considered as the biggest accomplishment of it uh, back in times. Now uh, it's actually uh, considered um, like it, it is pretty much like tying your shoelaces together uh, because when you use inheritance, you create dependencies and those dependencies may not be necessary to exist. And, and that, uh, that kind of dependency can actually hurt your flexibility in changing code. So instead of inheritance, I suggest using composition. Uh, instead of inheriting a class from another, I say uh, use an abstract interface. And if you have any co common code, separate it from your class hierarchy and put it in, in another class. So I tell about it in the examples. And uh, uh, also, I, there are other anti-patterns. Like I say, do repeat yourself. So there is this well-known um, advice in programming world. It's short and dry. Don't repeat yourself. So it, it's actually a principle that uh, recommends reusing code as much as possible. So that in the... the, the um, Point is ha have as little as code possible, so you write less code, and that means you spend less time writing programs. But uh, the thing is, when you try reusing code aggressively, you can again create unnecessary dependencies and actually dependencies over boundaries of context. And your let's say your file class can depend on your window class because UI class for, for the reason of simply reusing the code. So I'm telling in the book that such aggressive approach to reuse can be harmful and actually can make you a slower developer than um, you can be. So the, uh, uh, I'm telling in the book that you can just copy paste the code when, when it makes sense. And and that's the the book is about basically. I'm usually repeating that in the book. Like, only do that when it makes sense. Only do that when it doesn't. And um, so that's that's the general pattern throughout the book. Excellent. Yeah. Um, well, one thing I liked about the book is you also offer some maybe higher level strategic advice. Uh, for example you talk about how to succeed on a dysfunctional team or with a paranoid manager. So <laughs> talk, talk a little uh, bit about that because I think that relates to everybody. I mean, it, you could be a coder, you could be a, whatever you are, right? Um, and if you've got to deal with a dysfunctional team or especially a paranoid manager, but I, I want to hear some examples of a paranoid manager too. So please talk, talk a little bit about that. <laughs> uh, so uh, that, that was one of the topics in the security chapter. And uh, the thing is, while the, the, we design security, uh, we developers only think in terms of vulnerabilities, software updates, open ports, like technical things, but, but security is more than that. And um, 
One of the examples I give out is that a controlling manager might want to have access to every resource in the company. And uh, because of that, they might have uh, unnecessarily broad access to every resource. And when you have perfect security designed and your manager has that access, then you don't have a secure design in the first place. It doesn't matter how much you invest in security. Uh, just sending an email to your manager can actually uh, let a hacker to breach your security. And I'm I'm trying to tell about some of the ways to avoid this kind of hierarchy in the book. And and in other ways, um, like uh, I think all the advice in the book can help in those settings. Like um, uh, when you uh, you're in a code review and your manager reads about something uh, in a magazine or in, in, in a book, like a rule. Uh, why, if they ask you, why didn't you write comments here? Uh, because you should write comments. I mean, because uh, dysfunctional measures can be very dogmatic. They, they don't know the subject. They may not know the subject very bad. But they, uh, if they hear about something, they try to enforce it on their employees. Well, I and, would, um, if if I had a manager asking me about you know writing uh, code comments, I would just say, hey man, here's here's the book called Street Coder. You got to read this, man. That's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a brilliant idea. So, uh, th yeah, that's the, that's the thing basically. I mean. If you become inquisitive about the practices you follow, you you can counter argue uh, about the points your manager brings, and uh, that that's what I want to impose to readers in general. I mean, be, become inquisitive about any rule, any dogma, so you can argue about them in a you know logical way rather than you know, hey, everybody does this, why don't we do this? Uh, instead of that, you can just say we do this because it helps us in this way. And I'm trying to, you know, um, push this agenda <laughs> in the book, basically. No, that's that's excellent. Uh, let's let's stay on the topic of security for a while, because, you know, this is the Secure Talk podcast. So that makes a, a sense, I guess. Uh, you know, Maybe you can give us some of your thoughts on the key points or key best practices for writing secure code. Yeah, um, so security is a very broad subject and writing secure code, that's something we haven't resolved yet. I mean, it's currently, I mean, it, it's only marginally possible to verify if a code is secure or not in a, methodical way. Uh, normally, you don't have that ability because of how Turing machines work, because of the halting problem. We haven't yet found a way to verify if a software works correctly or not. We can do it in very strict settings, like using uh, narrowly defined programming languages 
But other than that, in general software development, we don't have a way to say that this code is secure. So it, it is still a mystical art <laughs> to write secure code, but uh, uh, but there are things that uh, every developer should know from the get-go. Like, as I said before, knowing the risks, ability to prioritize them. And there are very basic stuff that you need to know if, uh, if you're writing remotely accessible code. Uh, for example, um, I, I own, uh, I'm one of the shareholders, but I'm also the founder of uh, one of the oldest social media websites in Turkey uh, called Ekshi. And um, so I've, I had been CEO of the company for a while. And during that time, I noticed that uh, the developers we hired uh, might, some of them weren't knowledgeable enough on these topics. And that's why I think it's a good idea to remind them because nowadays we still see websites get hacked because they have a SQL injection vulnerability or uh, they have XSS vulnerability, cross-site scripting vulnerability or CSRF vulnerability. Those are very basic things. I mean, that's not even the scratching the surface of security, but I think they are valuable uh, to know and how to know that uh, to address them and um, well if so if you're involved in a in a project a development project do you have a security checklist I mean you just mentioned a couple different vulnerabilities right there um, and sometimes teams will go through ad hoc and say oh have we checked for this have we checked for that uh, sometimes there's there's one individual or a small group of individuals that uh, are responsible for security. Sometimes it's a it's a broad team effort. Sometimes it's organized. Sometimes not. What have you seen that works best in terms of making sure that the final product, the final platform, is secure across most known vo common vulnerable uh, excuse me common vulnerabilities? Yeah. Um... <sighs> During my C my time as a CEO at the company, I I think the uh, the greatest thing that helped was code reviews. So code reviews was critical in order to um, get a good idea about how the, um, the code gets shaped. Because I think that code reviews are a way to uh, they are like an initiation ritual for a new code to be accepted by others. And after code review, it becomes everybody else's code. That's uh, my perception. And if you don't uh, say anything in the code review, then you don't have, you can't say anything about that code in the future. Uh, in terms of, you can't blame the developer anymore. I mean, the, obviously you can find errors in it, bugs in it, or uh, change it, but, you don't have a right to complain about it anymore. That's how I see code reviews. And I, th I think they help a lot, but you're right. You need someone who is knowledgeable on security issues in the code review team so they can uh, provide insight about best practices. If that person doesn't use parameterized queries in their code, you tell them to change the code. Uh, 
but you you have to make it a part of the process. Otherwise, it's really easy to for them to get away, you know, uh, because it's easier to write unsafe code. It's usually the easier way. So uh, developers are like, you know, um, lightning. They find the path of least resistance. <laughs> so uh, if something is easier to do, they'll do it that way. And um, I'm trying to tell in the book that uh, actually the harder way doesn't have to be very hard. There is only marginal difference between writing secure way and the unsafe way. So I'm trying to convince the reader that, hey, if you can do this, you can do it with very little changes, very little improvements, and you can still have secure code in the sense of, you know, avoiding those vulnerabilities. That's some excellent advice. Hey, um, let me ask you this. What advice would you give, and this doesn't have to be related to security or whatever, I, more on professional development and career development. Somebody who's considering to be a, a developer, a coder, or somebody who's, you know, they just graduated and they're in their first job and they, they really want to move up the, you know, the career ladder. Or, you know what, mm -hmm. it, it, maybe that's not even the, the, the end goal. Maybe it's they just want to be the best programmer possible. What advice would you give? Uh, yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I think uh, Steve Jobs' quote in his uh, co commencement speech at Harvard, I guess, uh, he, he said, stay hungry and stay foolish. Uh, and uh, um, I think it resonates in a professional software career. Uh, when we start our software career and looking for a job, we we try to find the best job there is, and we try to find uh, we have um, ambitious career aspirations. But um, I I think um, a mediocre job or less paying job can also be beneficial in terms of shaping your experience expectations from a company. So uh, instead of you know wasting time looking for the best job over a year, I'd say use that year to work at a worse job and use the experience to uh, prepare yourself for the better job. Uh, so yeah, that's that would be my, uh, I guess, biggest advice because i i found that in my you know i've been developing software for 25 years professionally and when i look back to my early years i see that i i benefited a lot from my experience at terrible companies you know terrible process management terrible management in general but i learned a lot from them and <clears throat> I think, uh, I, you know what, the yeah. as long as you're learning, I, I really don't think there are, quote, good and bad experiences. I, I, I think that any time that you learn and you can just reflect on, okay, what's the, what's the teachable lesson here? What's the learn, learnable lesson? If that can become part of your day-to-day -day kind of thought process, 
it's all good, you know? And, and, and then, yes. because there's no such thing as good if you can't, because it's good as relative, right? So if everything is at the same A level, 100%, well, then it's all the same and it's not good. It's just, it's just average at that point, right? And so you need to know, understand, you, ha- you need to have that contrast. Um, but, but you also, in order to take advantage of that contrast, you need to have that, that mindset that you're talking about. Yes. And if, if I uh, would add anything to that, that would be um, surround yourself with better people than you. And that can be at a bad company or, you know, good company. It doesn't matter. But have people that are much better than you around and they can change your perspective. They can extend your horizon. Um, that, that can help you in many ways. I think that helped me a lot in my professional software career. Great people. I mean, when I first joined Microsoft, before I started my job there, before uh, my first day at work, I thought, hey, I I got accepted to Microsoft. I must be a great programmer. I must be an excellent software developer. That's what I thought. And I started there and I, I, I saw the people working there and I said, hey, all these people are much better than me. They are excellent. They are like geniuses compared to me and that actually made me much more excited about uh, about my career there because I had so much to learn from them and they helped me a lot in that sense I felt like a padawan in a Jedi Academy <laughs> so yeah that that uh, that was great and then I noticed that that was a pattern in my career whenever I worked somewhere I found someone that are much more experienced or much more knowledgeable than me. And I like uh, learned a lot from them. And that's critical uh, to accelerate your uh, learning process. And I think it helps much more than uh, any other uh, thing. Because when you see someone doing something in, in actual reality, that changes all everything you know you see that person typing code uh, in front of the screen and you see how they do something there are very subtle hints in making your jobs uh, making your task much more i mean accomplishing your task much more effectively and yeah and they also have a lot of wisdom in them too and you can benefit from it too so yeah Basically, don't be afraid of uh, working at a bad job and surround yourself with great people. Those two go hand in hand. Some excellent advice. And I'm not sure who said it. It might have been Ben Franklin. But somebody once said, you are the average of your five closest friends. And I, I kind of think that way professionally as well. If you, know, if you surround yourself with people who are all above you, it's going to pull you up. And, and the opposite is true as well, right? I mean, if you're in a job and you are the rock star and nobody's even close to you, well, how, how do you learn? It might, might feel good to, you know, to always be right and, and kind of you know, leading every project, but you're not, you're not developing, you're not growing. So that's, uh, that's very true. There is another quote similar to that one. That says, if you are the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> I like that. I so, like that. Hey, um, uh, so you're originally from Turkey. Is that correct? 
That's right. Okay. Yes. So I know that the, okay, so I'm going to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but just, just bear with me, okay? Um, the, the Turks and the Greeks, historically, I'm talking, you know, thousands of years ago, historically, um, uh-huh. have, have had some serious issues. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious, did you, do you, as part of your education or, um, you know, or afterwards, have you ever read any, any Plato? Um, only uh, brief excerpts, not not whole works. Okay, basically. well, I'm going to read to you um, one paragraph from a, a Platonic dialogue uh, called Mino. And Platonic dialogues typically, in, you know, involve he's writing about his teacher Socrates, and there's typically a question that's asked, and then they, throughout the rest of the dialogue, hopefully they resolve or answer the question. I'm going to kind of modify this a little bit and I'm going to, you're going to be, you're going to be um, in the role of Socrates, but we're going to change Socrates name to Sadat and I'm going to read this to you and then I want you to answer as, uh, as Sadat or as Socrates. Okay. So listen to this. Uh Sure. Can you tell me Sadat, can coding be taught or is it not teachable, but the result of practice or is it neither of these? but people possess it by nature or in some other way? Um, that's a great question, Plato. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, um, actually, in that time, I, I'm Mino. I'm, a, uh, I'm, a, I'm an aspiring coder who's going to the, the, the most famous coder or philosopher in all of Greece. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so um, I think um, we have an innate uh, ability to understand coding or software development or programming. I mean, we can run a microwave, we can run a dishwasher. All those are actually programming tasks. Very simple, but still we're making a device do something. And that's in our nature. We command something and make them do something. I mean, so in that sense, yes, programming is part of human nature. Um, it, and it, it's not mutually exclusive that it can be taught. It can still be taught. And, uh, but uh, I think, actually, in my experience, I started programming uh, after I saw my brother write a program on an 8-bit computer, and I was astonished because he wrote some lines and uh, the code drew a sinus line on the screen, and my brain got blown. And, uh, (laughs) you know, how could you do that? Like, you wrote, typed something there, and something appeared on the screen, and I was amazed and that actually what uh, draw me to learn programming and i think yes there is something uh, that makes us excited about development because we can control something command something and create an experience using it make other people experience something we created i think that's part of human nature and it, it the more you learn about it, you get better at it. And practice, the, the more you practice, you get better at it. 
they all are in the same box. They are not at all mutually exclusive. Now, and I, you know what? I, I think what you're saying um, is that, you know, you can't just sit down in a class and passively receive information and be out of coder. You have to be motivated and kind of self-directed. Um, that has to be part of the equation. And some of the best coders and developers that I've ever that I've ever worked with were all self-taught, uh, but they're constantly hungry, and it's just they had this passion to to you know wanting to learn and challenge. Uh, challenge the quote-unquote um, you know normal rules to the game and uh, in asking why why not this way why not that way and a lot of times when you ask why you know you get uh, your, your your question gets shot down or when your proposed solution gets shot down but you know the great ones don't care they're just like well okay fine you know I just I just want to know you know why are we doing this and by understanding why that actually it goes back to that principle because if you understand the why, you understand the principle, and then later you can adopt the principle. But um, yeah, no, I mean the, the, the personal motivation is is, is awesome. Okay, uh, we're we're coming towards right. we're coming towards the end of our time here. Uh, <laughs> any last thoughts or comments or advice that you would give to um, uh, you know aspiring coders or people who are already out there in the game? Um, I mean. Uh... <sighs> The most common question I get asked is, which programming language should I pick to start programming? And I, I usually answer that with, just pick the one that looks easiest to you. Because um, the, the programming knowledge is mostly transferable, easily transferable between different programming languages. They only differ in syntax, sometimes paradigms too, but mostly in syntax. And uh, I think uh, they just should pick what, whichever is the easiest. Like, for example, Python. Python is very straightforward. It has a simple sy syntax. It is slow, but it can get the job done for certain tasks. So if Python looks easy to you, start with Python. And then maybe you, 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 you figure out that you need a web application and you need to write front end, then you can switch to JavaScript later. Or you need to write performance code, you can switch to C Sharp, Java, or um, C. But start with the easiest one, and the rest will come. And you don't have to learn everything from scratch when you learn a new language. Excellent. That would be my final answer. <laughs> no, that's great. And you know, every time I read a book or talk to somebody, my goal is is to learn at least one thing. And um, in today's conversation, I've learned several things. Um, I think it's been very, very helpful. So I really appreciate your your time, and um, I'll be putting a link to your book or the the, um, the publisher's page where our listeners can download a copy of your book if they like. Uh, and I'll be putting, I don't know, do you have any social channels that, um, that, you, that you would want me to link to or do you want to mention here? Sure, I do have a Twitter account. Actually, my book has a separate Twitter account too. Uh, you can share both if you want. Um, Excellent, I'll do that in the description. And uh, again, awesome. I really appreciate talking to you and uh, hopefully we can uh, cross paths one day soon. Thank you, Mark. This was great. 
Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk.